Good morning. Welcome to our service. It's so great to have so many of you with us here in our sanctuary. Welcome to those of you joining us online. And what a privilege to have Lance and Lisa with us today. I love when our missionaries come to visit. We are a uh, world and local missions church. And I just want to take a moment to say thank you because of your generous giving to our church. We're able to support missionaries like these. And even during the past year and the pandemic, we've not had to reduce anything. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for being part of a church that supports world missions. So very grateful for that. And thank you again for joining us today. This will be our last Sunday on the topic of that we've called benediction. We've been looking at the benedictions in Scripture starting back in the month of May. We began with perhaps the best-known benediction in the Bible, the one found in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. We're going to conclude this series today with perhaps the second best-known benediction, a much shorter one, the one you hear almost as frequently as the numbers benediction in our church, and it's found in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14. The reason we've studied these benedictions is that it's very easy to take them for granted and miss the significance of what they mean and what God wants to communicate to us through the, the blessings that are spoken or written for us in Scripture. Sometimes we're reading a New Testament book and we, we read a greeting by the Apostle Paul that goes something like, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We kind of want to skim over it to get to the real meat of the passage. But those blessings, those benedictions, those greetings that open and close many of the letters, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us to teach us, teach us about God's will and to guide us in our own praying and blessing of others. Now, the benediction we're looking at today is just one verse. You'll see it on the screen. It's 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14. If you've been at our church for a while, you've heard it a number of times. It ends the book of 2 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul, with one sentence, three phrases. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. My hope this morning is that when we hear that in the future, we will each have a much more full and rich understanding of what these words mean when they're spoken to us in a worship service or when we read them in the Bible. Let's take it phrase by phrase. I'd like to look briefly at the first two phrases, and then we'll focus upon the, the third phrase, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. But first, let's look briefly at the first two. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been with us in this series, we've talked about grace before. Grace, along with peace, would be one of the two most frequently mentioned blessings in the benedictions of Scripture. As we've studied the, the benediction of grace as it's presented in Scripture, we talked about the fact that most of us, when we hear the word grace, understand that to refer to God's full and free provision of our salvation in Jesus Christ, and we should. That's the greatest demonstration of God's grace. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God. But grace is for growing Christians too, who have already received the gospel, who've already been saved by grace through faith. One of the ways the Apostle Paul helps us understand grace is when he he, he shares the account of his pleading with the Lord to take away this thorn in the flesh that was causing him so much suffering. And God's response to Paul was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And we saw in that verse that God's grace can refer to his enabling power. And in that sense, we each need a continuing experience of the work of the grace of God in our lives. Grace to enable us to persevere through hard things, to do the things God has called us to do, to remain faithful when things are difficult. We saw further that grace can refer to God's gifting of Christians. The Apostle Paul, uh, Apostle Peter rather, in 1 Peter chapter 4, writes these words. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. One of the manifestations of the grace of God in your life and mine is that he gifts us with gifts with which to serve other people. So we each need a continuing work of the grace of God in our lives. That's why the Apostle Peter will write in the book of 2 Peter, grow in grace, grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. May grace and love be multiplied to you, Peter writes. So when you read a benediction in Scripture about the grace of God or you hear us speak one, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Realize God's grace doesn't stop when we become Christians who are saved by grace through faith. God's grace is to be a continuing experience, enabling us to walk in God's power, gifting us for service. We're to live in a growing experience and understanding of the grace of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, Paul writes. What about the love of God? The love of God. Love is foundational to who God is. Everything God does is guided by his love. Even his judgments are guided by his love. That's why John the Apostle could write, God is love. We love God because he first loved us. The greatest demonstration of his love toward us was in sending Jesus to die on the cross and bear the judgment for our sins to take our place that we might be credited with his righteousness. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But as Christians, we're to have a growing understanding of and experience of the love of God. That's why the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians, and this I pray, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. God wants each one of us to have a growing understanding of and experience of his love. So when you hear the words of this benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, God wants to continue to do these works in our lives. They don't stop when we become Christians. Knowing the love of God more deeply 
as a Christian becomes, I think, the greatest motivation for a life of service. I feel sure that Lance and Lisa, when they obeyed the call to leave this area and go to the Middle East, were compelled by God's love, God's love, and a desire to take the message of His saving love and grace to the people there. Likewise, the more you and I grow in our experience and understanding of the love of God, the more it displaces love for sin, love for lesser things, love for things of this world. A love of God's to be a growing experience. But now the third phrase of the benediction, and we'll spend our time there today. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, why are we focusing here? Simply because I think it is the least understood of the three. What does it mean to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit? That's what we'll talk about this morning. The word for fellowship is often uh, translated as communion. The communion of the Holy Spirit be with you. Uh, They mean the same thing. They translate the Greek word koinonia. It's one of those Greek words that uh, we've heard a lot. Some churches call their small groups, their fellowship groups, koinonia groups. And the word koinonia, fellowship, communion, refers to a, a sharing in common. So to have fellowship with someone, at the very least, means to, to have communication, uh, perhaps the enjoyment of another's presence. But what does it mean to fellowship with the Holy Spirit? What does that mean for you and me day by day as we go about our lives? Why did God put it in this benediction? So that we might enjoy an increasing awareness of fellowship with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? We'll explore that today, but first I want to note that this benediction is a Trinitarian benediction. That is, all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't know of another one in the New Testament. In a number of cases, uh, God and, and Jesus are referenced, God referring to God the Father, Jesus God the Son, but this is the only one I can think of where, where the Trinity is mentioned. It's significant that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all referenced here because it's another remind us, reminder to us that the Holy Spirit is God. On the screen, you see an image. I don't know the origin of this image, but it has been around for a very long time. This image is an attempt to depict the biblical teaching of the Trinity. The Trinity, the fact that God is triune. The Trinity might be defined as the doctrine or the biblical teaching that there is one God, there is only one God. There's one God who exists eternally as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. Now, I realize that this doctrine, this biblical teaching, it's one of the hardest, I think, for most Christians to grasp. And that's the reason we we put together a a little booklet called Understanding the Trinity. Um, They're available today at the Resource Center. They're free. If you 
If you want to dig more deeply into it, you can pick one of these up today. But I want to start here because to enjoy communion with the Holy Spirit, it is necessary to have the utmost respect and reverence for Him and an understanding that He is God. He's not merely some impersonal force at work in a person's life. He is God. And Scripture presents Him as such. The, the image is, is intended to teach that there's one God. By the word God in the center, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But there's a distinction between the Father and the Son. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Trinity says there's one God who exists eternally as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I stress the word eternally because God has always been triune. He has always been Trinity before the creation of anything. One Scottish teacher of many centuries ago said, God must be Trinity because God is love. Otherwise, in eternity past... God would have had no one to love, but there has always been in the very being of the Trinity, our triune God, perfect love, perfect communion, perfect fellowship, and out of this perfect love, God chose to create and to share his love. The great theologian J.I. Packer, who died several years ago, said perhaps it's best to think of God as the divine team. So, to enjoy fellowship with the Holy Spirit. How do we honor Him? How do we reverence Him? It starts by understanding who He is and what He does for believers. As Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If you and I are going to honor the Holy Spirit, and enjoy His presence in our lives and walk in communion with Him, fellowship with Him throughout life, experiencing His power, His guidance, the fruit of the Spirit, it begins with, with the utmost reverence and respect for who He is. He is God. And it also includes knowing what He comes into our lives to do. Because Jesus told His followers, it is to your advantage that I'm going away. Because if I don't go away, the Comforter, the Helper, the Holy Spirit will not come. But when I depart, I will send him to you. And then Jesus goes on to teach us what he does in the life of believers. Enjoying fellowship with the Holy Spirit begins by understanding who he is and what he does for believers. So what does he do in our lives? Here are just a few things. Jesus referred to him as the helper, the comforter. Jesus said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, and the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all I've said to you. Now, if you're reading a King James or New King James Version instead of helper, it probably says comforter. I remember reading a story years ago about a mom who was changing the sheets on the, the beds in her home and her two little girls was playing while she was at work doing that, and she heard the older one say to the younger one, Emma, 
jump into the Holy Spirit, jump into the Holy Spirit. And she wondered, what in the world are my kids talking about? As the comforter from the bed was laying on the floor, she realized that at Bible school that week, they had heard an explanation that the Holy Spirit was the comforter. The Holy Spirit, the comforter. It's a beautiful way to think of the Holy Spirit, one called alongside to live with us, to help us. Jesus also said he will be our guide. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. It's critically important to understand this. The Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Scripture. The Apostle Peter says that the Holy Spirit caused the writers to be borne along, to be carried along, so that what they wrote were the very words of God. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture, and He is the great illuminator of Scripture. He illumines our understanding. When you and I study the Bible, we don't do it as isolated individuals. If we're Christians, if we're believers, and the Holy Spirit indwells us, we study the Scripture with the great illuminator in partnership with us who can illumine the words of Scripture and speak to our hearts. He guides us into all truth. I think it's important to note that the Holy Spirit will never guide us in a way that contradicts Scripture because He's the one who inspired the Scripture. And He will guide us, and He will always guide us in ways that are consistent with the right understanding of the Scripture. Number three, He's the empowerer. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In fact, he had told his disciples, don't even go out and try to do anything on your own. Wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. He gives you the power to be a witness. I am so glad for that because I feel so inadequate in and of myself to try to approach somebody and share the gospel with them. And if you are aware of your dependence upon him, to explain the gospel to another person, I think you're in a very good place, a far better place than if you think you're very capable in yourself alone. He empowers us. He's the bestower of love. Paul writes in the book of Romans that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us a deeper understanding of the love of Christ ruling and reigning in us, shaping us, changing us, as we're more filled with a knowledge of the love of God for us. It displaces love for lesser things. It's the great Holy Spirit who does that work. Furthermore, he's the giver of spiritual gifts. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, extensively about spiritual gifts, and again in chapter 14 of that Book, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. The Spirit is the one who distributes the gifts individually as He wills. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 1 to say, Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. It's the Holy Spirit who brings gifts to our lives. Why does He bring them to our lives? As Peter said, as each one has been given a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. He gives us gifts with which to serve other people. You may not know what those gifts are yet. 
But as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 1, it's good to desire them, even to pray for the gifts he wants to give us to serve others with. He's the producer of spiritual fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is fruit the Spirit brings about in the life of a believer, and I stress in the life of a believer, because it is only those who have embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within. The Holy Spirit's work in the life of a not-yet-believer, Jesus said, is to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. He shows us our need for God's forgiveness. He draws us to faith in Jesus Christ. But once he indwells us as believers, he not only brings gifts, he brings fruit. You want to know whether a person's full of the Holy Spirit? They're full of these fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, kindness, much neglected fruit. A person who is unkind is not full of the Holy Spirit. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what our lives are to be like, full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. Communion with the Holy Spirit, fellowship with Him, growing experience of His presence begins by understanding who he is and what he comes to do, how he comes to work in our lives. Secondly, we can enjoy fellowship with the Holy Spirit this way, by respecting, by respecting his presence. Now, the Apostle Paul writes extensively about the need to respect his presence and not to dishonor his presence. Because when a person comes to faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwells them, Paul says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then you and I have a responsibility to live in such a way that we do not dishonor or disrespect this great indwelling guest, the Holy Spirit. Paul particularly notes that we're not to dishonor him by sinning with our bodies, particularly with sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing about sexual sin. I think he particularly has in mind in that setting adultery. And he says, don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In other words, how can you, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, use your body in a way that so dishonors the Lord? Because the Holy Spirit's there, you're to glorify God in your body. He does the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8, where he specifically speaks of not committing sexual immorality. And I think in that setting also he's speaking of uh, adultery. And he writes, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In other words, if you're taking your body, using it to commit sexual sin like that, you're dishonoring God, the Holy Spirit. 
It dwells in your body if you're a believer. Being aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit can be a beautiful incentive toward a more, a more holy life. Respect his presence by not dishonoring him. Paul gives another uh, command negatively. Don't grieve him. I find it remarkable that a mere human being could possibly grieve the Holy Spirit. It's striking. I mean, how can a human being grieve the Holy Spirit? But Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Careful with your words. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And in this context, it seems like he's saying we can grieve God, the Holy Spirit, by wrong speaking. Maybe you're in a conversation with a friend at work and, and you're... Uh, I start kind of putting someone else down because that kind of lifts you up. And because you're a Christian, as you're saying that, you're feeling that gentle, convicting work of the Holy Spirit within that you should stop here. But you press on, grieving the Holy Spirit. Or maybe, mom or dad, you're, that anger is starting to build up at one of those kids and you're about to have an outburst of anger and you know that God, I think, is telling me to sit down and wait before I say or do anything. Often, we press against that type of a leading. In a marriage, it might be a conversation with our spouse where we are tempted to really say something and we know if we say it, we're going to be throwing gasoline under the fire when we learn to walk gently with the Holy Spirit and yield to Him, we learn to hold our tongues. We learn to be cautious about our words. We learn not to let corrupting talk come out of our mouths and to say the things, and maybe hard things said in the right way in the right time because we're to speak the truth in love. But our words are under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Respect His presence. Don't grieve Him. Paul says, don't dishonor him with your bodily actions. Don't grieve him with your words. And then he says this, don't quench him. I find this remarkable, that a mere human being could possibly quench the Holy Spirit. Now, the word translated quench here means literally suppress. Suppress. Get in the way of something the Holy Spirit might want to do. Now, Let's read this command in its context. Paul's writing, Rejoice always, pray, <coughs> pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So how might you and I quench the Holy Spirit? Well, suppose you're in church this morning, in the worship and singing you begin feeling in your heart that God wants you to praise Him. You should lift your voice. You should sing to the Lord for His honor and for His glory. You should give Him thanks. But you continually suppress that. You quench that. 
I'm embarrassed to sing to God. I'm embarrassed to lift my voice to God. Don't quench Him. Praise Him. Rejoice. Pray. Give thanks to Him. Do not despise prophecies. I would understand a word prophecy defined by fall as words spoken to edify, exhort, or, or comfort. The Holy Spirit will never use you to speak a word to someone that will contradict Scripture in any way, but He may put it on your heart. Say something to someone to encourage them, to edify them, to comfort them. He may put it on your heart to go pray for your neighbor who you know is hurting deeply. He puts it in your heart to do that. You think about it, but you push it off. Puts it in your heart again, but you push it off. I think I've done that many times. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Some quench the Holy Spirit by putting Him in a doctrinal box as if He could never do some of the things He did in the Bible. Paul says, don't quench Him. Don't dishonor Him. Don't grieve Him. How do we enjoy fellowship with the Holy Spirit? By understanding who He is and what He does in the life of a believer. By respecting His presence. Don't dishonor Him. Don't grieve Him. Don't quench Him. And then finally, positively now, by seeking His fullness, desiring His fullness. Here Paul gives this command, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for God, for Christ. A Spirit-filled life is marked by praise and thanks to God, gratitude, giving thanks to God, and submissiveness to one another of all things. Mark of a, a spiritual life, a spirit-filled life. Why does Paul contrast being filled with the Spirit with being drunk with wine? Well, when a person is filled with wine, that person's under the influence of wine. When a person's filled with the Holy Spirit, that person's under the influence the guiding hand, the guiding grace of the Holy Spirit. For us to be filled with the Spirit implies desire, yieldedness, wanting to be guided by His presence. Paul's writing to people who are already believers. That's clear in the book of Ephesians. But we're to desire to continually be yielded to the Spirit, filled with His fullness, not grieving, not quenching, not dishonoring. So, how do we enjoy fellowship with the Holy Spirit? We understand who He is and what He comes to do. We respect Him. We reverence Him. We don't dishonor Him by our actions or our grieving or our quenching. We seek His fullness. And I think we could kind of recap it th this way. I think perhaps three things necessary for growing communion with the Holy Spirit. I would say, number one, reverence. Reverence Him. Know who He is. He is God, the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord. The Lord is the Spirit, Paul writes. Secondly, attentiveness. Attentiveness. 
I think most of us Christians live our lives with relatively little attentiveness to the Holy Spirit, despite all Jesus said about his being our guide and our helper and our empowerer. It is important to be attentive to his work in our lives. Now, you may be wondering, how's, how's he going to? How's he going to speak to me? How's he going to guide me? I'll say it again. He inspired the Scripture. He's the great illuminator. He'll never, he'll never contradict Scripture, a legion way that contradicts Scripture, but there, there are many times in life we need his leading, and there's, there's not a black and white answer in Scripture that addresses that for us. How might he speak? Well, I, I like to reflect on how he has spoken to, to people in the past. I think in, in Acts chapter 8, Philip, Philip wasn't, a, wasn't an apostle. He was, he was a deacon in the early church, but his heart was set on spreading the gospel and evangelizing. And the spirit, a, a man from Ethiopia is driving by in a chariot, and the scripture says, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And Philip obeyed, and he led him to faith. I think of Peter in Acts chapter 10. Peter went up on a rooftop to pray while dinner was being prepared, and he, God gives him a vision. And as Peter's pondering the vision, the Holy Spirit speaks to him. Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. Evangelism results. I think of this remarkable passage in Acts chapter 16. Paul and his friend Silas are going out spreading the gospel. And, and look what happens. As they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, they'd come up to My Mycenae and they attempted to go on to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night of man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Incredible. I think about this, and I go, how did God forbid Paul or Silas, the two of them, to speak the word in Asia? Did a voice come from heaven? I don't think so. I doubt it. Because in Acts chapter 9, when Paul came to faith, the Bible tells us very clearly a voice was heard from heaven. Perhaps the Holy Spirit just gently gave Paul the inner knowing. Silas, I don't know why, but I just don't think God's calling us to go there. I, I, I feel like he's calling us to go somewhere else. Then they attempted to go into Bithynia. And somehow the inward witness of the Spirit, perhaps. But then Paul, he has a vision. And he concludes her to go into Macedonia. Remarkable. What's particularly notable about these three instances to me is that in all three cases, there were people who were obeying the broad general will of God to take the gospel. All three cases involved evangelism, going out, 
God may put it on your heart to go and share the gospel with your neighbor. Start by praying, praying for them. God, the Holy Spirit, wants us to be attentive. The three things necessary for growing communion, three mindsets, I would say, rather reverence, attentiveness, and obedience. Of learning to obey his guidance when he calls us to forgive someone, when he calls us to, to, to not speak in some situations, when he calls us to some act of kindness or generosity or mercy. And so as we conclude with this thought, Three questions by way of personal application. Number one, am I consciously, and I would emphasize the word consciously, honoring the Holy Spirit's presence and role in my life? Am I being led by my emotions or my mere human reasoning? God gives us reason to use but he also wants us to rely on Scripture-grounded, Holy Spirit-guided wisdom. Secondly, is there any way in which I am grieving him? Grieving him in the way I'm speaking to my spouse or people I work with, kids? Grieving him by unkindness, a lack of love? Somebody I'm unwilling to forgive? Willful disobedience? Thirdly, am I seeking to live under his full control? Am I desiring the power, the presence, the enabling, the gifting, the work of the Holy Spirit? Be filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul says. Let's pray about that today. Father, we want to know and enjoy more fully the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Teach us, help us, guide us. Let us be a church filled with people who individually are filled with your Spirit and corporately your Spirit is mightily, powerfully, beautifully at work among us. And I pray for anyone here today or watching us online who has never embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Would you please, dear Lord, precious Holy Spirit, bring the needed conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment and draw that one to faith in Jesus today. Teach us to honor you, Lord. And we pray in your great name. Amen.